Looking at this today, uh, we're only going to be, uh, just to let you guys know what we're going to be doing. Um, last Thursday, uh, correction, this past Tuesday, we looked at Psalm 116, which if you ever read on your own, right, or even a review from uh, last week uh, or this past week, I actually think this is really the prediction of the death of Christ on the cross. It's a very visual, very vivid part. Why we're looking at this is because all these Psalms, 113 and 18, is because these are the Psalms that Jesus read. These are Psalms that Jesus sang. Uh, during the last week of his life and also especially the last night uh, when they had the Passover meal for the Jewish custom, they would have sang all these and these would have ministered to Jesus Christ in preparation for him to go to the cross. Now these Psalms could apply to us, okay? Some of these Psalms apply to us, but also as well, not just only applies to us, but also as we see deeper, the greatest uh, one that fulfilled it is Christ. Um, in beginning of all this, today we're going to only look at verses uh, 19 to the last part of Psalm 118. The reason why we're skipping that is because since this is Resurrection Sunday, I thought if we only look at Psalm 117, the two verses, um, it's most appropriate maybe to see even direct prophecy. Okay, If we've been looking, going through the whole thing, I think one of the reasons why, listen, listen, one of the reasons why I really believe in the Bible is actually, uh, for many reasons, I think one of the reasons is the way the Bible describes sin is probably the most starkest in any world religion um, in terms of how sinful we are. But I actually, rather than being turned off, I actually feel actually that describes really my sinfulness. But the Bible described that, not just to describe it, is to say this is how much God's grace is. This is how much God's grace is, okay? At the same time, the other reason why I believe in Christ, I know I say this all the time, is also because of the Bible's incredible prophecy, Okay? Now, we've been going over this last few weeks. If it's, none of it was really convincing to you, I think to me the most clearest of all these Psalms, 113 and 118, is actually 118 of direct prophecy of Scripture. Okay, Psalm 118 is actually quoted a lot in the New Testament. Psalm 118, what we've read, we're only going to look at the second part. So what we're going to do this Tuesday is we're going to go back to Psalm 117 to show uh, how it relates, uh, how it preaches to us and how it relates to Christ and the work of Christ. And then we're going to go to Psalm 118 uh, uh, next Sunday, uh, next Sunday, a week from now. We're going to see the whole passage as a whole. But today I'm going to look specifically at how 118, the last portion, the last portion, how it's cited and used in the New Testament, okay? Uh, I'm really excited about this. Uh, you guys have probably remember I've taught on this different times before. Um, this is actually part of uh, one of the chapters of my thesis was actually in looking at the use of Psalm 118 in the use of Messianic prophecy of how Jesus argued that He is the Messiah with the Jews, okay? Um, so after uh, when I wrote my thesis uh, in 2010, uh, like 10 years ago, I was just so blown away, like, whoa, this is a prophecy that you don't really see a lot of Christian apologists or even most Christians today even really know about or think about. Or books don't really talk about about us, but at the same time, you look at the New Testament. It is quoted thirty five times in the New Testament. Okay, I think the only book, or the only uh, scripture that's quoted more than that is actually Psalms one hundred and ten, which most Christians know as a prophecy of Christ. Okay, but we'll look more into the details of that next time of one eighteen when we get there. But today, I want to actually look and really want to make it conclusive for you. If you follow along and say, why are we going over this? How's, why is Jimmy Lee saying all these things as Messianic prophecies? Because the New Testament themselves, the authors, and Jesus Christ himself said this is Christ fulfilling, dying for us. If there's more any explicit of these six Psalms, it's actually Psalms 118, okay? So if you're following along, this is the outline for today. Here's the outline for today. It's three points, okay? Our main point is to marvel at the, this Messianic prophecy of Christ last week, okay? We're going to marveling at this, at the last, uh, these me Messianic prophecies of Christ last week in this passage, okay? And we're going to see three points, okay? Uh, I really think this is the seven days that change the world. Is that last seven days of Christ's life and leading up to His uh, death and resurrection, okay? These are seven days that change the world. So these are th uh, three points for today, okay? Uh, point number one. Psalm, we're going to see how these Psalms fit on different days in Jesus' last week of his life, okay? Uh, point number one is Psalm 118, verse 26 on Psalm Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday, okay? We're going to see point number one is Psalm 118, verse 26 on Palm Sunday, okay? Psalm 118, verses 26 on Palm Sunday. Psalm 118, verse 26 on Palm Sunday. If you're taking notes, that's the point number one. 
point number two, Psalm 118, verse 22 to 23, uh, mentioned by Jesus during the week. Okay, I know they're a little bit awkward title, but I think as you see each point, we're going to say, wow, Jesus, we've been expecting you. You're such a beautiful Savior, okay? Point number two is Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23, mentioned by Jesus during the week, okay? I mean by that, the last week of Christ, okay? Uh, Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23, mentioned by Jesus during the week. Go a little slow. I see people still writing, taking notes. Okay. Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23, mentioned by Jesus during the week. Okay. Uh, and then the third point is Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24 on that day. Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24 on that day. Okay. On that day. What is that day? We'll talk about this in a little bit. Okay. Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24 on that day. Let me review all these three points again. Point number one is... Uh, Psalm 118, verses 26 on Palm Sunday. Psalm 118, verse 26 on Palm Sunday. Psalm, and point number two, Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23 mentioned by Jesus during the week. Psalms 118, verses 22 to 23 mentioned by Jesus during the week. And point number three, Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24 on that day. Okay, um, Those are going to be the points. And by the way, when we go through these points again, if you didn't take the notes... Uh, of course, I'll restate it again, okay? So why is it we're looking at the whole Psalm 113 and 118, this whole set? Is I think I've already argued for the Jewish custom. They read this every night leading up to the Passover, okay? And also during the Passover night, they would have read it. And also when the high priest that night after... After Christ would have been killed, the high priest still had to do their ceremony, which the high priest was one of the leaders, Ananias and Caiaphas, was actually one that put Jesus Christ to death. It's, I think it's so incredible that God would put Psalm 113 to 118 in the mouth of Jesus' very own enemies. And these are the Psalms that actually predict about Jesus Christ dying for our sins, okay? In beginning with this, I think when we read this, this is where we have to pay attention to the Psalms. Because when we read this, I think some of us could say, yeah, it, kinda, it could describe anyone. But I think as you pay attention to details, you're like, okay, no, this could only refer, some of these things could only refer specifically to Christ. And this, Psalm 118, the ending, is especially clear, okay? Uh, I want to begin first by looking at verses 24. I'm going to read verses 24 real quick, or just a note. Just I'm going to give you my own example of how I misinterpreted Psalm 118 when I was younger, okay? Psalm 118, verses 24, do you guys read this part? It says, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, okay? Raise your hand if you guys ever heard that song before. You guys ever heard that song, okay? Um, this was actually one of the first Christian songs I learned, okay? Um, this is kind of funny, maybe, to share. Uh, I, re I learned this song when I was 14. In, during July of 1997. Okay, you can kind of date my age from that, okay? It was because when I was uh, 14, I went to something called Marine Military Academy. Between my uh, summer of my 8th grade to... Uh, uh, ninth grade during that summer before I went to high school uh, I went to Texas in something called Marine Military Academy okay it was like a boot camp for kids for one month you know um, that was my first exposure like wow the Marine Corps world is so crazy and the drone instructors they had back then was like these Vietnam War era drone instructors my personal opinion my personal opinion is uh, these drone instructors were a little more sadistic so I remember when I went to Marine Corps boot camp I remember thinking oh no these drone instructors are going to hit us I remember there was one time I was flinching and the drone instructor stopped and said hey you know like uh, we mess with you we push you around slap you around but you know I, 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 we can't punch you in the face right I was like oh okay because I think those drone instructors when I was 14 they were a little more sadistic uh, with that the games they thought of was like wow it was a total different world and I would look forward every Sunday to church because the song that we sang that I remember is This is the Day that the Lord Has Made. And I, I'm a little kid like uh, Anthony and uh, Jin were Marines too. We could probably test when we go to church in the Marines, right? Everyone is crying. You don't know why, but you're just crying for that one moment, worshiping God. You just feel human again, right? Um, you have emotions. It's okay to have emotion. You can't just be, ah, kill, 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 all that crazy nonsense. We, we have to chant and stuff like that, okay? But I remember at that time just singing and thinking, okay, this is Sunday. It's the day that the Lord has made, okay? How many of you guys ever read this song and thinking about this is the day it's talking about Sunday or the day that God has made, okay? Uh, I actually would say this day that the Lord has made is not talking about Sunday. It's not talking about another day. Though each day is the Lord has made. But in the prophecy, it's actually talking about the death of Christ, okay? These pro this is actually a prophecy of talking about the death of Christ. 
So if you guys are tracking with me, let us look at point number one. Psalm 118 on Palm Sunday, okay? Palm Sunday, if you remember, is one week before what? The death of Christ. One week, uh, correction, one week before the resurrection of Christ. So if this timeline, if today, let's just say, uh, hypothetically, this Sunday is the day that Christ raised from the dead because we're on Resurrection Sunday. The Sunday before, last Sunday, the church around the world celebrate Palm Sunday, which is celebrating Christ's triumphant, so-called triumphant entry into Jerusalem, okay? This is where Christ came in. I remember people greeted Him, okay? Now, if you guys can, look with me again in Psalm 118, verse 26. Psalm 118, verses 26. It says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, okay? Say this uh, along with me. You guys can say it out loud even if you guys have it uh, on your mic on mute. Say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Okay? So Psalm 118 uh, says this, okay? Now remember this phrase because when you look at the New Testament, when Christ that day comes into uh, Jerusalem, remember the Jews' expectation of the Messiah is not someone that's going to die for their sin. I think if they read their scripture carefully, yeah, that is that. But their biggest expectation, what they want Jesus Christ more for, is to go and kick the, the Romans, uh, what do you call it, occupiers, away from Jerusalem. They saw a military leader, okay? So when Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem, which is the capital for the Jews, this would have been like, yes, okay, you Romans have nothing on us. You don't even know what's coming, okay? That's what they were thinking militarily. But look with me, in, you see in the week of Jesus, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, apparently this psalm was actually important for the Jews. Turn with me first to Mark chapter 11, verses 9 to 10. Again, Mark chapter 11, verses 9 to 10. Why we're turning to this is because I want to show you the very first time in the last week of Jesus' life, you see these are the words in the mouths of the people. You see Psalm 118 being quoted in the mouth of the people, which shows the Jews understand this is messianic. Of course, their understanding of that, I don't think is fully capturing what Psalm 118 is trying to say. But Psalm 118 verses, uh, what we see in verses 26 is quoted by uh, the, in the mouths of the uh, people. Okay, Mark 11 verses 9 to 10. Okay, Mark 11 verses 9 to 10. Is we're going to be turning there, okay? Mark chapter 11, verses 9 to 10. This is what, uh, again, this is Palm Sunday. It says, They went, uh, uh, those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 10 Blessed is the one who uh, is the coming uh, kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, so in this passage here, what we see here in verses uh, 9 is you notice, as if you look at your English Bible, verses 9, is it all capitalized? Is there any part that's all capitalized in our English Bible? Yeah, the part that says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, why is that all capitalized instead of everything else? Is in our English Bible, that's a way of signaling to us readers that this is actually a quotation from the Old Testament. This is a quotation from the Bible earlier. This is a quotation from God's word earlier, okay? So Psalms uh, 118 is quoted by those who are greeting Jesus. Hosanna, right, is, you know, the coming of the Lord, okay? And it's saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what this is saying? They're saying, hey, they're saying, Jesus, you are the one, Psalm 118. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the people were so excited. They're like, oh, you are God. You're coming over here, and you bless it in the name of the Lord. The name Lord is actually Yahweh, okay, God's personal name, or sometimes known as Jehovah, okay, um, or mistranslated into German and then later into English as Jehovah. It says, blessed is the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. And they're excited because what? In verses 10, they're thinking, oh, Jesus, you're going to come over on earth and going to establish the kingdom of God. The Romans are going to, they don't even know what's coming. There's going to be a great revival in the sense of a military reign. But of course, we know Jesus' first coming is not to rule politically and militarily, but is actually to save us from our sins, okay? So you see this in the last week of Jesus' life, the, uh, the first day of the last week of Jesus' life, you see this psalm being quoted, okay? By the way, if you guys could turn with me real quick also as well to John chapter 12, verse 13, Okay, John chapter 12, verse 13. If you guys could turn there. John chapter 12, verse 13. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 
13, okay? John chapter 12, verse 13, okay? John chapter 12, verse 13. Uh, now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking. Oh, no, correction. John chapter 12, I'm sorry. John chapter 12, verse 13 says, um, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And they began shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Okay, we know this is the, John's account. Okay, uh, we're not going to turn there. But if you're taking notes, this psalm is also quoted in Matthew 21, verse 9. Okay, Matthew 21, verse 9. And in Luke chapter 19, verses 29 to 40. Okay, 29 to 40. Now, why am I saying this is because if you notice Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four books that record the historical life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospel actually mention the, this psalm being quoted. So if all four books quoted this in the testimony, just like today, right? Uh, one of the apologists I really appreciate is a guy named J. Warner Wallace. He's actually an L.A. Uh, sheriff's de uh, uh, detective. He solved cold case. He later became a Christian because he decided, I'm going to look into the historical uh, 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 truth, whether or not Christianity is true. He was an atheist and actually became a Christian. Now he's speaking in conferences all over. Okay, uh, No Christian background previously. This guy later became a Christian. Okay, He's still alive today, uh, still doing his work as a detective and also as well um, writing books defending the Christian faith. Now, I bring it up to say this. One of the things I love about his book is he mentioned if all witnesses, they don't necessarily agree with every detail. But that doesn't mean, therefore, the event didn't happen. But he mentioned a point. If you look at all the witnesses agree on the details, that point might be important. That point might be very, very important. Now, if all four witnesses in the Gospels mention about Psalm 118 being quoted, I think that shows amazingness that the people understood that Jesus Christ, when he says he's the Messiah, they understood also as well Psalms 118 is a prophecy of Christ, okay? Is a prophecy of Christ. And that's why they're expecting him to be what? As they quote Psalm 118 verses 26. Psalm 118 verses 26. Why they quote this is to show us that they, um, they were expecting Jesus Christ to be the Messiah. To be the Messiah. To be the great triumphant tri uh, Messiah. But if you guys could turn back with me again to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Turn back with me again to Psalm 118. Where was it they quote from again? Where was it they quote from again? It's in verses 26, okay? Remember the part I had you guys read out loud? Uh, join with me. But before verse 26 could be fulfilled, there's certain things that need to be fulfilled first. Listen, before Psalm 118 verses 26 is fulfilled, where the people will greet him in the house of the Lord, in the temple of God, before that could be even fulfilled, verses 22 and 23 happens first. Verses 22 and 23 appears first before we see verses 26. Before Jesus Christ is a triumphant king, something needs to be fulfilled first before that happens when he comes as a triumphant king. Look with me again in verses 22 to 23. Here is a prophecy. It says, quote, The stone which the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Okay? Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23, chronologically and sequentially, appears before the prophecy of Christ as what? This great king. One of the things that the Jews got wrong, one of the things they got right is Jesus Christ is going to be a powerful ruling king. He will be one day ruling over everyone. He will be ruling over all the earth. Okay, That's what they got right. But where they got wrong is the timing. Where they got wrong is the timing. They thought, oh, here's Jesus Christ. He is, the scripture talked about, he will be a king. He will rule over all. But they made a mistake of saying it has to be right now. It has to be right now in the sense of Christ's first coming on earth. Okay, because the first coming of Christ was not to rule over the whole world at first, but his first coming is actually to save us from our sin. His second coming, when he comes back, he will rule over everyone. Everyone will bow down and say, you are Lord. You are King of King and Lord of Lord. That should be his right. But you know, God, in light of this, we have to know this first. He must be ruled. This is where the Jews got right. Sometimes Christians, they get wrong. We don't want the idea, oh, he's ruling over the world. Oh, we don't like, no, he is. Not, again, that's not the church ruling. Because the church, we're all faulty, right? The church does not rule over the world. It's Christ. You guys see there's a difference, okay? I don't ever want the church rule over 
Because what pastors are already busy and God's role is for the minister is a minister of grace. The government is a minister of wrath, okay? There's a separate roles uh, between those two. But here we see Christ is a rightful ruler. But his first coming, as you see in verses 22 to 23, it describes something else must happen before he must be the ruler of the world. And you see this passage. It says the strange thing about a stone being rejected, right? Verses 23 about this is the Lord doing this that will be rejected stone. So the question then is what is this? Okay. By the way, in looking at the Hebrew, in look at the Hebrew, you guys know um, in English is the sentence structure we normally have is what? Subject. After that is what? Verb. And after that is object, right? In Hebrew, it's not exactly like that. Hebrew regular sentence structure is uh, verb first, then subject, then object, okay? Uh, verb, subject, object. But in Hebrew, this interesting thing is sometimes you can move things around for emphasis. It's like today we use highlighters, right? When you write something for emphasis, when you type things, what do you do? You put it in bold, right? You change the color maybe. You put in italics. You put it underlined. You change the font. You make it font bigger. In Hebrew, one of the things they do back then to put for emphasis is to break that sentence structure and put whatever it is you want to emphasize out of order, putting that first. In Hebrew... Remember, it's supposed to be a uh, verb, subject, object. The object here, uh, they switch the order here. What is they put here is actually what? Uh, they put the emphasis is on the word stone, okay? The word stone is the subject is actually put first before the verb. It's for emphasis, okay? And the Hebrew word for stone is a word, the Hebrew word, there's more than one word for stone, is the word eben. Say eben. Okay, you guys know anyone named eben? Okay, um, you know, it's a Hebrew name and the word means precious stone. Okay, now when you go outside, right, you look at the asphalt, there's different kind of rock. Okay, and then there's some people, um, you guys ever had a geology class? Um, when I had a class in geology at PCC, I remember uh, we had to check out these rocks to go home. And I made a mistake of saying in front of my geology teachers, because uh, uh, he asked, did everyone else check out your um, minerals? And I said, yeah, you know, uh, I, I'm good to go. I have my rocks. And the professor got, kind of got upset. He was like, hey, they're not rocks. They're minerals. And I was like, oh, oh, well, they're, they look like rocks to me, okay? Because to him, he's offended because it's like precious. It's not, it's, it's not just a bunch of rocks collecting elsewhere. And I understand what he has. So in Hebrew, there's word for regular word for rocks, but there's actually a word for the kind of rocks that they had in geology class, the precious stones. And the Hebrew would call that eben. Okay, he probably wouldn't be offended if I said Eben, okay? So this term is actually, one of the t- word is actually, this is a word for the Messiah. Listen, this is, remember Jesus Christ has more than one title, okay? His title is the Son of what? God, the Son of Man, the Prince of Peace, right? The King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He has many titles, right? He's the Lion and the Lamb, and he's also the Shepherd also as well. Many different titles. One of the titles for the Messiah is actually the word Eben, okay, is actually the word stone, precious stone. And this is the same word that is mentioned here. Now turn back with me real quick to the first book of the Bible. The first time the title Messiah appears is in Genesis 49. Could you guys turn with me to Genesis 49 verse 10? Genesis 49 verse 10. I know today I think it might be a little more deeper, but I think we need to go deeper, okay? Listen, I know some of you guys here. I know there's Linda. I know there is Hector. I know you guys are Albert. I know there's Leo here. Some of you guys are taking advanced placement, AP classes, right? We want to go to college prep classes, right? But then we also need to go deeper in scripture. Listen, sometimes I think the sad thing and it's unfortunate is when I go overseas and teach a lot, is there are people always saying, whoa, you know what? That's a good thing you guys in America. There's so many resources. Churches go deep. And I was like, oh, you know, a lot of churches are nothing more than glorified what? Little like preschooler, what we teach with kids. I think that's unfortunate. We need to go deep in the Word of God, and you guys can handle it, okay? If you guys are taking college uh, physics, AP, and everything else, right, how can we also come to church and say, oh, we can't go deep? Uh-oh, pastor, that's wrong, right? You're just talking like a seminary. No, we got to go deep. Hello, Ben Russell. Go deep with the Word of God, okay? If you guys look with me in Genesis 49, verses 10. Genesis 49, verses 10. This is what it says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Nor the ruler from the staff from the feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of his people. Okay? I want to begin first with this prophecy, okay? You guys ever wonder why the Messiah is a shepherd and Psalms 23 is messianic? Genesis 49, Israel, that is uh, um, 
Israel, he, Jacob, he's about to pass away. And he's singing a song and saying, okay, I'm going to prophesy about my 12 kids. Remember the 12 tribes? And here in this prophecy, he actually says in verses 9, that there'll be one who's a line that'll come from who? Judah, okay? You ever wonder why Jesus is called the lines of Judah in Revelation and other parts of Scripture, the prophecy? It started in Genesis 49. To say that the Messiah will come from whose line? Remember, the Messiah could come from anyone. You guys ever play a game of Wars Waldo, right? You could say many people look like Waldo, but you want to be specific which one? The guy with the red stripe and white shirt, all that kind of thing. Here in this prophecy is saying, okay, of all the people, it's funneling down. Of all the many people, it's funneling down to say, who would the Messiah come from? How do we know where the Messiah is, okay? And here we see in Genesis 49, you see here that one, one it will be from the, from the tribe of Judah, okay? That is why it comes from David. David comes from the line of Judah. Okay, it's very specific prophecy. It can't be any Joe Smuckatelli who say, hey guys, I'm Jesus, okay? David Koresh, you guys know him? That crazy leader uh, of a cult uh, in Waco, Texas. He claimed to be Messiah. He cannot be a Messiah because why? Scripture makes it very clear. The one that who is the Messiah could only be uh, from the uh, tribe of Judah, okay? It cannot just be any Joe Smuckatelli that says they're Jesus Christ, okay? But look with me also as well. In uh, verses 24. But his bow remained firm and his armor agile from the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Okay. So in talking about, um, uh, in talking about here about Joseph, he goes back and talks about again, there'll be one from Jacob who's called mighty one. Okay. That's also one of the titles of the Messiah. Mighty one of Israel. Okay. And also he's called shepherd. Yes. We call him shepherd. Yes. Messiah is a shepherd of Psalm 23. And also, do you see the word stone? That Hebrew word for stone is the same one, uh, Eben, okay? So when you look there, there's all these expectations of the Messiah. Where you know that He is a Messiah. This is one of the le lesser known prophecies. Is that He is called Eben. Say Eben, okay? I hope for the rest of you guys, you guys will never forget this, okay? He is a Messiah. There's more prophecy of the stone prophecies more than most people realize, okay? Uh, here we see, turn with me now also as well. Turn with me real quick to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 7. Zechariah is right before Matthew, okay? Uh, it's two books before Matthew, okay? Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7. I want to show you this is the same term used as Messiah. It's very clear. And you might say, where did they get the idea of Messiah? It started with the first book of the Bible. The more I read the first book of the Bible, the more I see, hey, it's not just a bunch of stories of creation. and that's it. It's actually, there's a lot of prophecies and setting things up for us to expect Jesus Christ. Listen, you know, the Bible is more than just a book that tells you what to do. It does. But you know what the Bible really is? It's actually a, an invitation from God to know our Savior, okay? Sure, if you get a letter for, let's just say you get an invitation to go to attend, I don't know, meeting with the governor or meeting with a congressman. Yeah, there might be instruction what you need to do. You need RSVP. Here's a driving instruction. You need to dress like this or that. But it's more than that, is it not? It's an invitation to, to be with someone important. The Bible is the same way. It does give you instruction. You have to be godly. You have to pursue. You have to uh, be a certain attire in expecting and loving him back. But it's really an invitation for us to love and to see and have a relationship with our Savior who loved us so much who came and died for us, okay? Zechariah chapter 4 verse 7 says this, Where are you, O great mountain? Before um, Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone, which shout grace, grace to it, okay? The word here for stone is what? Is the same word, Eben. And here, I love what it says. Even in the Old Testament, sometimes people struggle. Is the Old Testament a book of grace? Yes, it is. You see, even here, you see, even here, that the Messiah is described as Eben, and he's described as a source of grace, okay? Now, this is not talking about the rocks in your geology class. That's not a source of grace, okay? It's a source of work sometimes, right? Learning and all these other things. Here, it shows that the title Messiah, he will give grace of God to us, Okay? He will give grace to us, okay? So in light of all this, in light of all this, we saw earlier, if you guys could turn back with me to Psalms 118. Let me read this again. Turn back with me to Psalms 118. Knowing all this as background, okay? You cannot read the Bible 
out of context. The Bible isn't, it's not a fortune cookie. You grab a verse out of context and just do whatever you want. It's actually a loving story, a thread, if you will, connecting all of it, a marching towards from Genesis to Revelation to tell us how much God has loved us, that God will send an invitation to say, come, free of charge. But at what cost? Look at the cost in verses 22 and uh, verses 22 again and also in verses 23. With this in context, let us read this passage again. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is marvelous doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Do you guys understand what this is saying here? This is saying the builders will reject Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Who's the builders? In this time, the religious leaders were building the second temple. They're always working for hundreds of years to improve it, okay? We live in a day that is amazing. People could build buildings really quick, right? By the way, people could build hospitals out of nothing, out of nowhere. But for most of history, people building churches, it took a long time. By the way, sometimes people in medieval ages, when they build a church, they know that they're not going to see in their lifetime. They're, but they're just happy to build it, hoping that their kids or grandkids would be able to enjoy the church. You see those grand cathedrals, right? Those Notre Dames and all those things. I know, yeah, they're Catholic. Yeah, I know they have bad theology. They, they don't teach grace. But at the same time, you look at that, you realize it's a building out of faith. So the Jews would have built their temple also in the same fashion over time. And the Jewish religious leaders, of course, orchestrated all that. Those guys were the builders. And verse 22 rejected, shows that they would reject the Messiah. Hard to imagine. But then notice it says, it's not as if the Messiah is not important because then it says as the chief cornerstone is a foundation of a new building, which is the church, which is you and I, including Jews and Gentiles. And in verse 23, you might say, okay, wow, this is a sad thing. But do you see the weird thing? Is it, God says what? God did this. It wasn't just God allowed it to happen. But it says God is actively doing this. God is predestining this to happen for a reason. And then it says this is marvelous in our eyes. We'll stop here real quick. How can it be that our King of King and Lord of Lord being killed be marvelous in our eyes? Unless it is for our salvation. With this, now let's turn with me. We're going to see how this psalm is, appears in the week of the life of Jesus. Turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Let's begin first with verse 1. I'm going to look at verses 1 to put it in context of when this was happening. On one of the days when he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes, the elders, confronted him. Okay? So if you look at Luke chapter 20, verses 1. Remember, early in Luke 19, if you look at the chapter earlier in verses 38, the people were quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is the one who came in the Lord. Okay? Then Jesus came in and he saw all this and then he saw people were making money. Not to worship God, making money, rising. You know like today, right now people get upset when people, what, what do they call it? Price gouging, right? People need something. You guys hear the story about a New, uh, 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 New York Times covered an article about, do you guys hear the story about this one person? As soon as um, he knew that things were going to go bad, he went to his uh, neighborhood, all his town, he bought out the whole entire, um, what do you call it? Whole entire cleaning supplies. Do you guys hear that? Then he went to the next town, went to nine, uh, uh, what do you call that place? Um, 99 cent store, he bought everything. He cleared out the whole thing. He bought everything. Then he uh, uh, borrowed, uh, um, rented a U-Haul truck, went to the next state. Do you guys hear about this? Then he went to, what do you call that? Um, eBay on Amazon, right? And he sold it like like 50%, 80% more than it's the cost that he had, right? Do you guys hear about this? Um, and then, <laughs> I don't know why anyone would agree. If, if I was him, not that I would ever do this, but if I was him, and if some journalist comes and want to interview me, that's probably not a smart thing, right? But then he decided to have the interview. You guys seen this picture where they, he's standing next to all these supplies because Amazon finally got fed up and said, we're not going to sell any supplies from you, right? So then he stuck with all these things, you know, him and his brother. It's filled with all his garage. It shows all these medical supplies and everything else. You guys seen this? With no one else to sell it. And then, I don't know why he agreed to be interviewed. He agreed to be interviewed and it shows that picture. And then he's still saying about how smart he is with doing everything. And now people, he can't sell all of it. He's like kind of like 
feeling sorry for himself. Then people in his town found out about it, and people wanted to what? Send threats to him, okay? I shouldn't be laughing. But I'm saying this to make a point. He's out making money out of people's misery, okay? So if you feel this, now that we feel this virus, put a little context. Jesus Christ, when he comes over, here are these religious leaders. They're saying, oh, you know what? Uh, you bring your animal, oh, your chicken's not good enough. But for the low, low cost of $200, we could get you a chicken and you could be right with God, right? These people were making money out of people. Two million people coming over to Jerusalem and they're making money. So when Jesus got mad, don't think it was like, oh, Jesus, like how come he's not nice? Listen, you can't domesticate, you cannot, you cannot neuter Jesus, you cannot put Jesus in a box, okay? Jesus, when you see these people, these are the price gouging people that you and I would say, they're price gouging people say, you, hey, to be right with God, to go to heaven, you need to buy food from these people and for a very expensive cost. And Jesus Christ says, you know what? This is terrible. I'm going to go flip some tables, okay? Jesus is, is like, man, he's, he, he loves you. This is why, because people are being damned with the theology of saying, do good works to go to heaven, not by his grace, okay? And we can't do enough good things. This is why Jesus turned over a table, flipped over, and guess what happened? How would people feel when Jesus Christ did that? They were mad. Verses 47. They were mad, okay? They want to hang, they want to kill him, Okay? They were, people were mad and they want to like end them because it's not good for their business, okay? This is, I mean, this is a cartel. You feeling me? Okay. This is a monopoly. This is a fascism by the definition of the state working with business to only for their own end. This is cronyism to its max. And Jesus Christ flips the table. And then, of course, the religious leader come over to debate Jesus Christ, okay? Comes over to debate Jesus Christ. Look, of, so they argue of Jesus, and look at verses nine to uh, nineteen. Okay, Jesus, by the way, goes on the offense. They attacked him, and he also does apologetics. In verses nine, he starts telling a parable. The parable I'm going to summarize is basically: there's a farmer. These farmers they rent from the landowner. The landowner was very gracious, but then one day the people said, "You know what? I'm not going to pay rent anymore." So then they don't pay rent. What does the landlord do? He sends servants to say, hey, where's my rent? And each one of the servants, what do they do? They beat them up. They make fun of him. They hurt them. And some they kill. And then guess what? The landowner says, you know what? I'm going to send my son. Surely they have respect for my son. And maybe that shows the son has a relationship with them or the son is loving and they know the good reputation of the son. And maybe that's appeal. And you know what they did to the son in the story? In Luke chapter 20 verses 9 to 19, they killed his son. Okay? By the way, son is one of the titles of the Messiah. Okay? Uh, and in the story, this analogy, by the way, when Jesus tells story, he's not telling cute Sunday school stories just for little kids in Sunday school just to say, oh, Kaliana, Kaia, okay, or so cute. He's not doing it just for that, okay? What he's doing there is he's actually dissing them and saying, hey, you guys are so wrong. You guys, are, I need to tell you a story. This is how wrong you are. You guys are so wrong. You guys are going to kill your very own religious leaders. You're going to kill the Messiah. You're going to kill the Savior of the whole world. Of course, the religious leaders are going to, how are they responding? Look at verse 16. They say, may it never be. We kill the Son of Man, Son of God, the Messiah? No, we're not. You're crazy. And then Jesus has proof. Look with me in verses uh, uh, verses, uh, 17. Jesus looked at them. I can imagine he had an intentional pause for effect. And says, what then is this written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. You know what he's saying? The religious leader is saying, no, we're not going to kill the Messiah. We want him. We welcome him. You're crazy. And Jesus say, hey, but then why does the Bible prophesy that the stone, that the Messiah will be rejected by the leaders? And then look at verse 18. He goes a little further. I don't have time to go over this, but he actually quotes from Isaiah, uh, reference Isaiah. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but to whom it falls, it will shatter him like dust. You guys see what he's saying? He's saying, yes, the Messiah will be rejected. You will cause him to fall. But for those that reject him, there will be a punishment. But for those that he trusts in him, he will save, okay? He will save. And then, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people for understood he spoke this parable against them. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is actually applying this verse to them. And you guys see it's so ironic? Uh, in Hebrew, by the way, uh, verses 19, uh, in Hebrew literal uh, correction, in Greek translation, is me'u. 
Okay, which is basically no, no. It may never be. It's a strong way of saying no. Okay, if you were to say this in like a uh, text language, you will put this no really big font with capitalize with all these exclamation marks afterward. Okay, with maybe a lot of angry faces afterward. Okay, like angry emojis. So that's the you know that's a I don't know cool style translation. Living translation, okay? That's how what it would say. When it says, may it never be, do you guys see this? They're saying, no, we would never kill him, son. And then do you see the irony? Right after he says this, they're like, they even want to kill him even what? More. They want to even murder him even more. This is incredibly rich with irony, okay? Once you see irony in the Bible, I think you'll see irony everywhere in your life. In movies and films, everything else, okay? But let's see, go back on. You see this psalm being mentioned. In the last week of Jesus' life, in one of those days before, okay? In one of those days before. And I think as application, we see this is a truth building up. That in the week, final week of Jesus Christ, when you were, read, when you were looking at through these Psalms in the last few weeks, last few days, right? These are all predicting, preparing Jesus Christ for the death on the cross, but when you read this, when the Jewish religious leaders, even the fair high priest, when he has to kill the, the goats, when they have to kill the lamb, when they have to kill the bull, they'll sing these psalms in the very mouths of Jesus' enemies. Because the Messiah will be rejected, which leads us to our third point. Nancy's okay. Uh, our third point in um, Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24, okay? Psalm 118, verses 22 24 is on that day. Let's go back with me again. Psalm 118 verses 22 to 24. We're going to add one more verse, okay? I want to read this again just to drill it to us how important these psalms are. It said, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Okay? Verse 24 is where I want to focus on when it says this is the day. This day, what it's talking about, the nearest reference, is not about our church on Sunday. It's not about our bad day. It was not our happy days, right? But in context, is the day when the Messiah will be rejected. It is on the day when the Messiah will be rejected. The Messiah who we call Eben Stone. And notice in verse 24, it says, let us rejoice and be glad that in his death there's a sense we could celebrate and we could find joy and we could call it good hence we call it what good friday now in looking at this i want to go to another old testament passage turn with me to zechariah chapter 3 verse 9 remember this day okay and i think it helps us to interpret this better when you look with me in further details zechariah is probably written a few hundred years after psalm 118 I think Zechariah knew about the prophecy in Psalm 118, and he's building with more details based upon what God's Word first predicts, okay? By the way, just to let you guys know, Psalm 118, when I was doing my thesis 10 years ago, the Jews, you might say, you might look at it and say, oh, I don't see it's Messianic, it's hard. That's maybe because we struggle in knowing the context and the flow. But for the Jews, non-believing Jews, the rabbis, the Pharisees, they actually interpret this. We actually have writings from Jewish rabbis, even to this day, that survive in their Talmud and everything else. They interpret this, and even their Targum, which is the Aramaic translation of the Bible, they actually saw this as Messiah. They even put the word Messiah next to the word stone um, for the Targum, I believe. Okay, uh, Let's turn with me real quick to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 9. Remember the day. Can we know more detail about that day that we should rejoice and be glad in it? Zechariah chapter 3, verses 9. Zechariah 3, verse 9 says this, For behold the stone, same word, Eben, I have set before Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Okay? You see this word again? That day and one day, okay? Here's the word stone that appears again, just like in Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24. Same thing, things that repeat is what? The word stone, which is Eben. And number two, the mention of a day. What is going to happen on the... Now, there's some things we don't understand. Like, it's kind of... Like, you look at it, wait, how does that stone have seven eyes? 
I think it's emphasizing this is a special being. He's not like you and I, okay? In the context, when it says Joshua, does not talk about our Joshua Chen. In the context in uh, Joshua 3, it's talking about there's a high priest named Joshua during the time of Zerubbabel. The people went, were kicked out of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and then the Jews were brought back because the Babylonians conquered them, kicked them out as God's punishment for their sin. But God was gracious, brought them back to Israel. And the high priest at that time was Joshua. He was trying to be faithful. And in Joshua, God gives us a window, a, a vision in heaven in Zechariah to Zechariah. See that, hey, even though Joshua was a good high priest, humanly speaking, he was good. Yet was he without sin or did he have sin? He had sin. So Zechariah 3 is showing us that even a godly man as Zechariah had sin and therefore his clothes was dirty and he cannot be acceptable sacrifice to God and Satan therefore is accusing him say hey ha ha see God these guys are all bad you should wipe them all out okay but yet here's a message of hope in Zechariah 3 9 the message of hope is in a stone it's a vision now okay it's a prophecy vision with seven eyes but remember earlier the stone is who the Messiah okay Zechariah is actually looking back and remembering Psalm 118 and seeing this additional vision and giving us additional revelation on that day. What is going to happen on that day? Verses 9 says, The Messiah, that is the stone, will remove iniquity of that land in one day. Do you guys see how revolutionary and amazing and shocking that is? We all have sin, yes? And the sin of the land is many. And yet it says here, on that land in one day, the Messiah will remove all sins. That is, He will remove all sin. We ask the question then, when is that one day that He removed all sin? When is that day that He will remove all sin? It has to be the day as we see in verses 22 earlier, where He is rejected by the leaders and that He would even fall. To know when that day is, turn with me to the New Testament in the book of Acts chapter, 10, uh, Acts chapter 4. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to answer the question, when is that one day that will remove all sin, that the Messiah will be rejected, that the Messiah would even be killed? Okay? When would that one day be? Acts chapter 4 is Peter looking back a few days later after that day and telling us when this happened. Acts chapter 4 verses 10 to 12. Acts chapter 10, uh, Acts chapter 4 I mean, verses 10 to 12. Acts chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. Quote, Verse 11, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You see what Peter is saying here? Peter is just a few days after Jesus Christ is dying, and he's saying that day is the day that you rejected, the religious leader rejected. That day is the day that the Messiah was killed, was crucified, was murdered on the cross. That was the day that has happened that was rejected. And that was the same day when he was rejected, when he was taking the full punishment uh, from the Romans, from the Jews, and also further the punishment from God the Father that you and I deserve. That was the day that you and I were saved. You know, when I evangelize sometimes, um, I do tell people Jesus is the only way. By the way, that's what the Bible teaches, not what I teach. Because Acts 4.12 makes it very clear. What other name could be saved? There's only one name. The name of who? Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, some people say, oh, you know, and I know my mom shares all the time. Why is it you Christians are so exclusive? You guys think you guys are the only way. Is it because you just believe, Jimmy, and therefore you follow, therefore this is, um, therefore it's right, and therefore, how narrow-minded. By the way, it's not just my mom, right? I love my mom. I share the gospel to her. I'm praying for her, right, throughout the week for her salvation. And I, I'm sure we all heard that. But I think we must put that context, Jesus is the only way, in the context of the Psalm 118. Psalm 118 makes it clear that the Messiah, the one who saves us, will have to die and be, what, saved. If I could give this analogy, right? Let's just say you're in your room. You're in coronavirus, whatever, you're asleep. 
And what you woke up suddenly because you felt it was very hot. And you discover your whole room is on fire. And while you're in your room is on fire, you discover you go to your door, right? By the way, they are saying if you're ever in a fire, don't hold the door right away because why? The, it's going to be super hot, right? The, what do you call it? The doorknob, okay? So you go, you tactically try to grab, I don't know, um, a glove or clothes, try to, and you realize, oh, you're stuck. It's, there's no way. There's fire coming in from the door, doorway also as well, right? And there's no way of escape, no way to be saved. But suddenly you look at the wall. The wall you see is moving, is breaking, and you think, oh no, everything's going to collapse. But then you discover, no, you see an axe. Someone is axing your wall, breaking through the wall. And you see, after you saw the guy has a helmet, and you saw it was a firefighter, okay, who risked his life, got on a, a, a ladder, risked his life, broke through the wall so that he could break when there was no way for you to get out to save your life. He broke through and saved in one way and he reaches out your hand. How many of you guys, when you had that situation, would say, hey, um, sir, I appreciate your effort, but man, why only one way? That's so narrow-minded of you. How many of us would say that? I, I would actually, if there's any crazy one, it's probably you, right? When there was no way to be saved, when we cannot do any good things to save, to go to heaven by our own effort because of all our sins, we tr- no matter how much we try, we keep sinning, right? Even as you're a Christian and you're in church, you sometimes do good things and yet you can still have ulterior motives or you could do things and you gr- had a grudge like, ah, oh, I know it's the right thing to do, I, I'm doing it, but I don't feel good about it. Yet all of this, how sinful as we are, we can't save ourselves. But with the person that risked his life, we would say, whoa, thank you for, there was no way, and you risked your life to save me. When you get down from the elevator, from the firefighter bringing you down, right? Fireman carrying you down, you'll be grateful and say, thank you, sir, for saving my life. Yes? Because he risked his life. How much more so with Christ? He didn't just risk his life. He risked his life, all right, by actually dying on the cross for all of our sins. My brothers and sisters, you see 118 fulfill in the last part with Jesus Christ on the cross. But this is the good news. This is the good news. Turn back with me to Psalm 118 again. Because of his death, his, war, his death is not just a random violent event in history, but it was done for a purpose because it says earlier, Remember it says earlier, this is marvelous in our eyes and let us rejoice and be glad in it. Why could we rejoice and be glad in verse 24? Is because why? Because of the fact that when you look in verses 27, it says, The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival uh, uh, sacrifice with cords that horns the altar. And in verse 27, it's telling us it is a sacrifice for our sins. Within this verse itself, it shows us the purpose of Christ's death is for sacrifice. These are not just psalms that people just read for religious reasons, just to be happy, right? These are actual predictions of the Messiah coming on earth to die for our sins. And our question today is this. Could we be glad? Could we look back as we say in verses 22 and be marvelous in our eyes? Could we rejoice and be glad in it? I think so. I hope if it moves you in any way, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ yet, Please turn to Jesus Christ. Trust Him as your Lord and Savior. Believe that He died on the cross for your sin. Believe that even before He died on your sin, He was already in anguish and suffering to be ready to die and doing everything right to be the righteous uh, uh, substitution for us. To take our sins also means He also has given us His righteousness. Believe that Christ died for you and I. And, and his act of God's love and God the Father's love. Not that you know every answer or every question that needs to be answered, but that you trust that he loves you so much that he died for you. Begin there and then work from there other points of your theology or beliefs. But here we need to see this morning, Christ loved us so much, he died for you and I. So that on that day, he gives us hope. So that as it says in verse 26, the sacrifice cords had already been seal with us. We're going to be looking in depth again in verses Psalm 118 next Sunday, but I at least want to show from the New Testament that it is not me being crazy, thinking this Messiah and forcing this into the passage. This is very clear. Our hope predicted a thousand years before it happened. Christ dying on the cross for our sins. Trust in Him today. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You so much for these prophecies. And thank you for this hope. Lord, you are sovereign 
So I want to go before you to ask you open to people's heart that have not trusted in you yet. Let this move people to see there is something amazing and awesome that is in your scripture. That it is worth studying your scripture deeply. Not just as a rule book that we need to follow your rule. But to see this as your love letter, your invitation to us to trust in Jesus Christ. Help us Lord. Save people today. Save people even through this crisis of this coronavirus. Save people even in our church today and those that are attending our meeting today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, um, at this time, uh, if anyone needs to, we're going to have prayer meeting in a little bit, but if anyone needs to leave, you guys could also say goodbye. Uh, you know, and happy Resurrection Sunday or Easter or whatever you want to call it. What's that? Okay. Linda, it's good seeing you. Hopefully you could join us every Sunday. Okay. Or Tuesday too, okay? It's still good seeing you, Linda. Hey Ben Russell, it's good seeing you. Eric and CNET, have a good day, okay? Just have, just enjoy always having you guys join. Okay. Hey Ben Russell. Hey. Hey. Okay. I haven't seen you in a while, Ben Russell. Yeah, same here. I feel like I'm gonna become a leftist hippie pretty soon. <laughs> okay. Okay, bye, Eric. Okay. Jimmy, your favorite, my favorite, you know, the ramen place is gone, you know that? What ramen place? The ramen place, the one with the little girl with the thumbstick. Oh, the Ajisan ramen? That one is gone, yeah. Oh. Uh, yesterday I went to try to look at this one Guayling noodle place that I always wanted, the one that Victor said in Focus Plaza, and they were gone too. I was like, oh man, this is hitting small business. Okay. Okay, let's do a prayer meeting right now. Um, could I have uh, Victor? Could you be the prayer for today? Because Eric signed off. You don't mind if I start with a prayer request first, because I always forget to share this. Um, uh, so I'll begin first with a prayer request. You guys could pray. Um, you guys know that originally I was supposed to be in um, China, right? In this time, obviously that didn't happen, right? Um, so yeah, so we're gonna do what we're doing is we're gonna do the seminary still over Zoom uh, every Wednesday. Uh, so I'm gonna, uh, so we're gonna begin next week. I'll be teaching, uh, every week. So this is something different. Unlike, you know, 40 hours in one week or something crazy like that. We're gonna space it out every three hours, every Wednesday night. So I'll be awake in the middle of the night, um, to teach, uh, with that. You know, in order, but we can't teach it, uh, because it's hard for students, right? Like eight hours on Zoom the whole time. So we're going to do three hours block at a time. And uh, so it was like last, you know, Andrew asked me about it. He just asked me, what do you think about it? And then he just said, no, we're doing it. I was like, oh, okay. I need to do it now. Okay. Um, so if you guys could pray for that, the preparation. So I'll be uh, working vampire hours. Uh, just like some of you guys. Okay. Okay. Um, so if you guys could pray for that preparation, you know, uh, it'll be hard, right? I'll, I'll be saying, I'll be teaching and then. Someone in Guiling will be translating, and then students in Beijing and Guiling listening in. Okay, bye, Julie. Okay, just pray for that. Um, that's probably better than being there in the middle of China and not being able to come back and not able to go and not able to come back. Okay, uh, let's do pr uh, prayer requests. Uh, Nancy, you have any prayer requests? My wife, I mean, my sister. My wife said, uh, pray for my sister's pregnancy. The one in Germany. Uh, ben Russell, if you could have your uh, button mute just for now. Is that okay? What was that, Jim? Would you be able to mute just because it's uh, there? Yeah, we, yeah, thank you. Uh, until your prayer time. Or prayer I, I didn't say anything. Jim. Oh, no, uh, uh, Ben Russell. I said Ben Russell. He was talking to me. Oh, he said Jim. Oh, yeah. I thought he said Jim. I know, Jim and Jim rhymes. <laughs> Okay. 
Okay, uh, so my wife's prayer request is just pray for Noelle's pregnancy and my sister's pregnancy, okay? Okay. Um, ben and Noelle, you guys want to type your prayer request? Is that better? Because uh, Just so it doesn't tune in and out. While we're waiting for you guys to type that, uh, Eric, I mean, uh, Victor, are we going too fast? Or are you good to go? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Roger. Uh, Hui? Uh, prayer request? Outside. Yeah, I had to come outside. Okay. Uh, Hui, could you have your prayer request? Cool. Pray for that. Uh, Victor, if you need some time, let me know. Okay, Roger. Okay, uh, Mr. Byrne, prayer request? Sure. So pray for my wife. She's with my son, uh, Timothy, and his family in Kansas. And uh, for various things, she's been staying there for over a month now and maybe a little bit. So pray that God's grace would be upon her and my son's family. And my daughter's here. Yeah. 